Hello Breakers! I am Mike Senior and I would like to welcome you to the 53rd episode of Project Studio Tea Break. I am here with thwarted Theorbo Shredder, John Whitten, <laughs> my co-host. Oh, I'm still a little bit bitter about that, truth known. <laughs> and I think we're right, I think it's to do with the tension of the strings and the materials, but still someone should have given it a go, I reckon. I still think that uh, Ingrid Malmsteen missed a trick there. <laughs> Possibly one of the only gimmicky tricks that they did miss. <laughs> the only Baroque instrument he hasn't <laughs> yeah. shredded. Maybe it's okay to leave one out. Yes. Maybe we, we need to kind of make peace with that. Maybe that's actually showing some admirable restraint. Although I've never heard him on the shawm, quite <laughs> thankfully. <laughs> I think a shawm already sounds like it's being plugged through some... Filthy distortion. Yeah. I mean, is it possible actually to have any kind of personality on an instrument that only has off and too loud dynamics? <laughs> <laughs> but have you earned your tea break this month, John? I, you know, I reckon I have. I finished a bunch of tricky mixing jobs. Excellent. There was a, a musical theatre piece where, for boring logistical reasons, we had to record a really tight four part harmony number. Um, had to record each of the singers separately. Okay. Um, without being able to listen to the other people. Oh, crumbs. So they were listening to the piano. You know, we, we were broadly in the same ballpark. Yeah. But we were looking for, like, a, 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 you know, if listeners know Six yeah. or The Fates in Hades Town or that sort of really tight four female voices. Wow. And I have not been so intimately familiar with Reaper's Time Stretch tool <laughs> and Pitch Envelope tool yep. in all my born days. Like, it is. <laughs> Welcome to my world, is all I can say. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, I mean, I know. Gosh, but you did, choir, you did remote choir stuff, right? I did, yeah. Tell me about that, <laughs> as someone just approaching the bloody battlefields that you've made your home. <laughs> well, I mean, I had to get, like, specialist tech involved, basically. Oh, yeah? What did you use? Basically, I hand-edited four of the parts, or one per line, mm -hmm. and then I used Revoice, that thing from Synchro Arts that is used to do ADR, Okay. to resynchronize all the other parts to the hand edited parts oh amazing and it just automatically pulled those two pretty much mm, yeah <laughs> i mean it did a pretty good job i mean you know if one of them didn't sing a syllable that should have been it then misinterpreted it and then massively stretched some kind of breath into the gap right so you had to do a bit of manual fungling and then fungling. i had the midi track mm. of the guide part that they'd sent out to people and then i used that yeah to trigger auto-tune plugins on each of the tracks. Oh, nice one. To tighten up the pitching without it mistracking. Right. Oh, that's that's genius. So, like, the, the auto, your auto-tuner. Yeah. What auto-tuner do you use, by the way? Um, actually, <laughs> for that project, I used a freeware auto-tune plugin. Wow. Just because I knew it was able to be triggered by MIDI. Yeah, it's a little VST plugin by GVST. I don't know it. That's incredibly useful. Is it octave-specific? Nope. Okay, so it's just anything on that pitch or set of pitches yeah you can put a chord in you can put whatever you like but i just used the guide track and set the pitch correction not to be too severe mm. and it just nicely kind of tightened it up that's lovely and then occasionally you'd get something where someone had maybe sung the wrong note in the part <laughs> you have to go in and like tweak that manually but then you could just do that pretty roughly and then the little midi triggered auto tune thing would do the rest that sounds like my favorite use of technology where yeah it will get you 80 percent of the way there in two clicks yeah and that was 
was what I needed her to do. And the great thing is that all the side effects of doing that, like the slightly time-stretchy side effects you get from Revoice, mm. or the slightly unnatural pitch-shifting artifacts you can sometimes get from this freeware <laughs> pitch-shifter, mm-hmm. are all completely disguised in the natural chorusy effect of acquired texture. In the chorus! <laughs> oh. <laughs> and it makes editing a breeze, too. Yes. You can edit anywhere with a long crossfade, and it doesn't matter. Yes. <laughs> it's just lost because in if the... one extra voice suddenly comes in and then ducks out, that's not going to be particularly noticeable. Yeah. Okay, see, this was actually a real challenge of, of this one because it's four solo voices. That's the tricky bit. And they wanted it panned quite wide. Yeah, it makes it so much more critical, doesn't it? <laughs> I know, I, yes. Can't get away with anything. I've done some ensemble vocal stuff and like you say, the only thing I know that's more forgiving in terms of editing is is distorted guitar. Yeah. <laughs> you just click and drag. There's, there's no crossfades necessary. Yeah. But yeah, solo vocals, even just like picking where to crossfade and also where to start and stop stretches. Yes. Because that's always going to be slightly audible, at least with, you know, what, what what I have on Reaper. Yeah. Uh, you know, best case, you just put it in a gap yeah. where there's nothing happening. So it, everything that you hear is at the same rate. But that's not always possible. So there's... Yeah. It's a patchwork quilt or a Frankenstein, depending on how nice you're feeling. The, the project is frightening to look at. It's funny because actually all the manual time editing that I do, I don't use time stretch for. Oh, yeah. What do you use? I actually do it all with audio edits. Just use the regular audio editing stuff. How do you mean the regular audio editing stuff? As in just cut and paste and crossfade. Oh, wow. Okay, so if something's too short, you'll find a bit of the vowel to loop or something? Well, I won't loop it as such. You'll repeat it and overlap it a bit. But just as long as you match the waveform at the crossfade and use an equal gain crossfade it's usually pretty invisible. Mm. It's only when I really need to stretch something really far and can't find a suitable crossfade that I would then use a time stretch. No, I am... I have... You are the master of the of the warp marker. I have a three key- keyboard stroke shortcut. Oh, right. Which automatically marks all the transients. Oh, lovely. <laughs> puts stretch markers there and then snaps them to the grid. And much in the same way, that makes some hilarious mistakes. <laughs> but it'll also do a lot of the grunt work. Yeah. So I'll, I'll get something that's kind of 80% there and then it's tidying. Oh, and we have some follow-up. Oh, hit me. Listener David Rowe posted on our Facebook feed and he said <clears throat> i was just waiting in the last episode for your stereo toast foley to get put through that new plugin <laughs> nice <laughs> so he's just like you he's on the edge of his seat i think i'm happy with us being that kind of predictable <laughs> i think yeah. i think that just means that we've got an established brand yeah i'm, I'm yeah. fully down with that on a separate note have you listened to the Pillars of Creation, a post from NASA Exoplanets. No, no. Quote, no. Through sonification. No, stop it. We can hear visual data from the space telescopes. Oh. <laughs> Maybe the guys at MIT ended up working for NASA. Mike, this is so upsetting. <laughs> On the scoreboard, I count one time when this has been done right with the bird song, that incredible bird song. Right, okay, yeah. And, and I don't know, 300 times now that we've reported that this has been done so badly. So my hopes are not high. But go on, how did they make space music? Well, they did the usual stuff. They plugged data into some kind of MIDI synth or into some vocoder or something. Cool. Although, there's literally a whole page on the NASA site of this stuff. <laughs> Loads of different sonifications they've done. Some of them looked a little bit more interesting. They'd taken, like, massively low-frequency, like, radio waves or something that had come in from a planet or something or a black hole and sped them up into the audio range. Okay, okay. see, that's interesting to me. So you kind of thought, okay, well, maybe that might be quite 
fun, but it mm. kind of sounds a bit cooler than anything I've heard out of any MIT. So, you know, it's got to be a win in some respect. <gasps> oh, I just remembered the word, like my genuine least favourite sonification was that space cube instrument. <laughs> Indeed. Which had nothing to do with space or cubes or no. zero gravity. It was just... no. Just a really bad MIDI controller. Oh, it was awful. Because if they just came clean and said, we're going to dick about with data and make some noises, it's okay, then fine. Yeah, oh, 100%. But the site has... Question. Ever wondered what the music of the spheres sounds like? Uh, <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah, and I'm still wondering. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, it's just more of the same old tosh for the most part. I mean, they're a little bit better than the MIT people as far as I can see, but it's like, what is this telling us? There are no answers here. Actually, did you catch up with that guy, that researcher? Because, <laughs> you know, that new space telescope has just been recently kind of starting to produce images. Oh, yes, yes, the James Webb one. I think there was some researcher who took a picture of a piece of salami, I think, <laughs> posted it to his Facebook page and said, yeah, it's amazing what you can see in these new pictures from your space telescope. <laughs> they kind of got retweeted on various newspaper websites and stuff. <laughs> so I, I liked that a lot. I do too. I think that sort of thing is a necessary antidote. But as much as I am delighted to hear from any of our listeners, mm. it does mean, unfortunately, mm -hmm. that we... We no longer have a Google whack with Stereo Toast Oh, no. I mean, good. I think we, we discussed this at the time, didn't we? It was as fleeting as it was beautiful. There we go. That, that actually, weirdly, the best case scenario yep. was that this wound down. Our Stereo Toast Foley Google whack is quite figuratively toast. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what I come back for, Mike. You got me again. Now, if you cast your mind back to our last episode, John, you'll remember we were talking about the MRC data report, mm -hmm. the statistics on the US record industry from last year. That's awfully serious for us, isn't it? It didn't end up being very serious, but, <laughs> <laughs> but that's always the nature of the beast, really, with us. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that sounds familiar. Now, one of the little tidbits that was in that report, and I'm not sure I mentioned it, did I say anything about Bruce Springsteen? You did not, Mike, which I consider to be gross negligence. Well, well, it was talking about how Bruce Springsteen had done one of the biggest deals in music business history mm. by selling the copyrights to his entire song catalogue to Sony. Wow. Do you want to guess how much it was for? Oh, I couldn't even begin to guess. I mean, it must be somewhere in the millions, no? The publishing of the whole catalogue and the masters of all his records. Uh, the thing is, once you get to a million, I, I don't know what the difference is between $1 million and $10 million. Yeah, I know what you mean. They become like monopoly numbers. Yeah, it's light years now. How many light years <laughs> away is yeah. the closest galaxy? It could be two, it could be a hundred. Um, you know what the difference between a light year and a regular year is? <laughs> um, oh, come on, there's got to be a pun there. I'm afraid we're not moving on until we come up with a punny answer to that one. A year and a light year. Light year has fewer calories. Oh, damn, nice one. <laughs> yes, fine. Anyway, sorry, go on. Now I'll say it and you can edit out your version. <laughs> well, yes, Mike, a light year has fewer fewer calories um okay five million dollars okay yeah that's one percent of the final figure no it was a half a billion dollars oh my god 500 million <laughs> greenbacks 
Oh, wow. That's a lot of million dollars. That's a huge numbers of millions of dollars. But basically what they've banked on, because this is this trend of investment companies now treating these catalogues as a financial asset. Mm. You know, they can make money off licensing this song catalog and these records. Mm. And so he's basically said, okay, you can buy the rights for that off me for a big chunk of change now. Yeah. He's made himself an annuity from his own catalogue, basically, <laughs> and they'll inherit it after his death. You know, it's that kind of thing. Yeah. But interesting as this thing is, Agreed. and slightly distressing, to be fair, this whole Wall Streetizing the music catalogue thing, I don't want to focus on him. I want to focus on another artist who also sold all their publishing last year. Okay. And that was Bob Dylan. No way. Oh, that's a shame. Okay. He sold all his copyrights to Universal. Do you want to guess a figure? Oh, my God. Okay, well, look, if Bruce Springsteen's going for half a billion, mm. and Bob Dylan is Bob Dylan, and also, I'm going to say that this is about longevity, and I'm sure that Bruce Springsteen's going to have a revival, but, like, <laughs> I've got to assume that's significantly higher for Bob bloody Nobel Prize Dylan. Oh, right. Okay. Um, I'd say a clean billion. I think it has to be, if Springsteen is half a billion. Well, actually, Springsteen was the top earner in that respect. No. Bob Dylan only walked away with a, a paltry three to four hundred million dollars. That is shocking to me. So I can imagine he's licking his wounds. But now Universal will collect all future income on all of his songs, all his classic songs. I'm really shocked. So poor old Bob. Okay. How can he hope to scrape by with just the $350 million in his pocket? Well, never fear, John. Don't cry. All right. <laughs> because on July 7th, this very year, that question was answered for us. Because he's done a new recording, a brand new recording of Blowing in the Wind. That's genius. And it's just been sold at Christie's Auction House for almost £1.5 million. And one person has it. It is a one-of-one one recording, a new one that no one's ever heard, that has not been put out, and they sold it. It was recorded uh, in Los Angeles and Nashville. Uh, it had Stuart Duncan was playing violin. Apparently Don Watson, and Dennis Crouch were on bass. T-Bone Burnett, who was the producer as well, was on electric guitar. Ooh, this is very exciting. Now, one of the interesting things about this is that it's on a unique new physical format called an Ionic Original. Ionic Original? Pioneered by T-Bone Burnett. And they look similar to vinyl LPs. And it's playable on an existing vinyl player. Okay, I'm getting less interested by the second, but I'm still listening. To quote the Christie's site... They owe their sonic quality to recent advances in nanotechnology and material sciences. Oh, they can go to hell. <laughs> they draw on methods used to protect parts of the International Space Station exposed to the direct heat of the sun and to make the damage-resistant glass on mobile phones. It uses ionic-assisted deposition to create an acetate that maintains pristine sound for over 1,000 plays. I feel betrayed. <laughs> It's a fancy disc, is what it is. I feel deeply and terribly betrayed. It's an aluminium disc painted with lacquer and etched the way you would normally do with a vinyl record and then kind of coated to make it more durable. How horribly, horribly boring. Oh, oh, but it comes in a custom-made walnut and white oak cabinet, of course, if you're going to pay a million and a half for it. <laughs> Honestly, I would hope so. That feels appropriate. I mean, anything else would be... I mean, it's already taking the... 
isn't it? There's no, there's no two ways about that. Oh no! Well, I mean, no. I mean, this is the pinnacle of recorded sound, according to T. Burnett. <sighs> it's, it, I quote him: "It's future-proof. It surpasses the sonic excellence and depth for which analog sound is renowned, while at the same time boasting the durability of a digital recording." Oh no, really? He goes on: "I started cutting acetates in 1965, and they've always been the best-sounding medium. Musicians have always said, 'God, I wish the record sounded as good as the acetate,' and they." never have because a vinyl record is down three to five generations from an acetate Ugh. it's the best sounding medium fine <laughs> fine well look if rich audiophiles need more things to spend their rich audiophile money on <laughs> go for it i would like it to be the case yeah that these turn out to be very very poor investments for sony and for universal the catalogs these catalogs it's not what anyone wants is it really i mean no the idea to me of bob dylan or bruce springsteen being absurdly rich that sits just fine with me yeah you know is, is it perfect system no but while we're gonna have rich steel magnates or whatever let's have some rich musicians as well yeah but the idea that from now until infinity, when some 14-year-old person in some little village rediscovers Bob Dylan's back catalogue and devours it, and as, as so many have, you know, just kind of yeah. learns about music and performance and lyricism, my God, lyricism, from this master, that all they are doing is lining the pockets of Universal? Is that a future that anyone wants to live in? That anytime you hear Bob Dylan, you play Bob Dylan, you pay your respects to Bob Dylan, yeah. that's just paying Universal. Not not as a middleman, not as a necessary bit of bureaucracy to get money to Bob Dylan. Yeah. It feels like grounds for a sort of boycott of some kind. Well, I mean, it's particularly with rootsy artists like those, mm. and even more so with another band who are just apparently in talks for a similar kind of payout, which is Pink Floyd. Oh, yeah. You think a lot of these people made money on the back of being anti-establishment. Yeah. I mean, you think like Masters of War from Dylan or Money by Pink Floyd. Oh, my God. You're not wrong. And you think, well, they're selling out to the man on it. Like, so hard, so desperately hard. You know, the Masters of War that Bob Dylan was singing about will be coining it in off the back of that song. From now until infinity. And that's what's so hideous about it, because I don't think there are any, like, ethical restrictions or anything. Right, yeah, so it can be used on anything. Yeah. It can... Oh... Joni Mitchell will be next, of course. Oh, see? <laughs> but uh, I guess it's their stuff and they should be free to sell it. It is. I think, though, that it should be acknowledged that it changes the meaning of their music. Unfortunately, yeah. And I can't help but feel that part of what Sony and Universal are relying on is that no one's really going to find out. Yeah. No one's really going to know. Yeah. Which seems like a fair bet to me. Yeah. Unless you listen to kind of nerdy music industry podcasts. And even, will we remember in six months oh well I mean the fact is once they've done it everyone's going to be doing it well yeah that's the thing and on, once there's a half a billion dollar sale I wonder in part if that's why Bruce Springsteen's figure was so high was as an attempt to start an avalanche of other artists running to large labels and, and trying to get on the bandwagon maybe it's a bit like in other you know wonderful news the idea that large institutions are buying up all the houses in the United States are way above market. So they're just swooping in, getting whole neighbourhoods and becoming landlords. Yeah. So if it all belongs to them, they can kind of corner the market in that way. And then hike the prices. Yep, once it's theirs. It's a bit like the way that people have turned Airbnb into businesses. Yes, exactly. And there's whole neighbourhoods now which are just Airbnbs and, and nothing else. Yeah. I guess the hope has got to be that in that sort of dystopian musical future, 
future, that's a brilliant setting for an underground to emerge. Well, I mean, hopefully, but, you know, I don't know. I think it is. I mean, It's something to rail against, isn't it? And it's never been easier for anyone to kind of share music and get it out there. Yes, there's Spotify, but there's also SoundCloud and Bandcamp. Why do you think SoundCloud and Bandcamp have got less popular? Is it because Spotify is just so easy and has everything? or, or... Yeah, convenience is a big deal, isn't it? It is. It's, it's huge. Definitely a big deal. I mean... I went from, no, not me, because it would it's illegal. A friend of mine, Juan Jitten, went almost <laughs> overnight from basically pirating all the TV he would watch. Yeah. Not as a particular statement. He just didn't own a TV, and he had a laptop. Yeah. And it was as easy as getting it anywhere else. Yeah. And there was no, like, easy way to get any of the shows I wanted. And then Netflix came along. Yeah. And overnight, I just put all my traffic through there. Not necessarily because they had all the shows I wanted to watch, but just because it was easier. Convenient, and there was plenty of content. There's plenty there. Like You can dig around and find something that's not offensively bad that will work. <laughs> and yeah, I, I feel like that's its effort to dig through SoundCloud. Yeah. I mean, the lack of curation is partly the issue. I mean, Spotify has curation, which SoundCloud I don't think has as much. No, I don't think nearly as much. I mean, the last few times I've had long drives, I've put on one song on Spotify and then just had it keep playing. Just let it freewheel. Yeah, and it, it does fine. I, I'll have to skip one song in five or something. Yeah. But it's just fine. And I found new music that I really like. Yeah. There's what would be my jam if it were my turn. Big Boy <laughs> by Payday. Right. And I, I'm just slipping it in anyway. Go listen to that song. And then once you've finished, listen to it again. <laughs> I wore out the acetate on that one. <laughs> even the Ionic original. Yes. Yes, somehow. Even the one that's used... The bit that infuriates me most about that press release, just to call back 10 minutes, <laughs> is the fact that it uses technology that's used on the space station to protect vulnerable bits from the direct radiation of the sun. And you think to yourself... Fine, but that's not a function that this is having to... You know, you could use technology that's used in bulletproof vests to stop bullets. You could use the material that's used in car bumpers to survive, like, really high-speed collisions. Anything that deals with regular friction. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah. Stuff they use on train rails. Yeah, you could... Just make the bloody thing out of metal. Yes. <laughs> Or ceramic. They could make a disc out of ceramic, couldn't they? Sure. Uh, you know, I, I could write that press release. This is made from the earth for the most warm and grounded sound you've ever heard. Yeah. Rare earth minerals were involved. <gasps> Rare earth minerals. Okay, no, no, you could write this press release. That's amazing. <laughs> yes, it's, it's fortified with rare earth minerals. God, what a mm -hmm. crock of nonsense. It's magnetically polarised, I think, for a more <laughs> involving sound. And the natural marble veins that are included mm. give it extra something or other. Doubtless. It is one of one. I mean, the, the natural marble <laughs> patterning, you, you don't just not repeat it. Yes. Oh, my. I, you just know that people would get on the blogs and talk about their particular pressing and how the marbling in theirs does this, that, or the other. <laughs> there was a, an English teacher of mine who was uh, just great. He was such an eccentric, but he collected first editions or a particular early edition of Isaac Stern's Tristram Shandy and one of the reasons he did it was because each one had a marbled page in it that was hand marbled oh my god <laughs> and it was different in every copy and he had loads of them oh my god okay <laughs> he was a nutter he was great no no Mike really this person a nutter <laughs> I, I just can't believe it but I mean T-Burn Burnett has just been a fountain of bullshit about this. <laughs> I, it sounds like it. It was all sorts of high philosophy coming out of it. It was like, um, I'll give you some quotes. These are some great bits. Yes, please. What I'm trying to do is 
enter a music space at the fine arts market. Because music is to the United States as wine is to France. It's the most valuable and important part of our culture, and it's not treated that way. It's treated like any other commodity, like a jar of mayonnaise. I reject that. <laughs> this is a full rebellion against mass consumerism. Uh, what, like selling all of Dylan's catalogue to the masters of war? Oh, yeah, come on. <laughs> This is a rebellion against consumerism? That's gross. That's really <laughs> disgusting. But then you get kind of tucked in there what it's really about. So, for example, he gets asked some question. He replies, well, right now we own this Dylan recording. Mm. Columbia owns the copyrights, as in the mechanical copyrights, the master records of their actual original recordings. And Universal Music owns the publishing, so everything else is split out that way. So we can't do anything with this earning original other than sell it. <laughs> well, OK, at least we've hit some honesty. And the person who buys it will be in the same position we are. We own this recording, but we can't copy it and we can't distribute it. All we can do is sell it. And that's what he could do too, the person who bought it. Wow, I mean, I, I kind of do admire the honesty here. That, <laughs> as you say, we get down to what it's actually about. And he said, but we can play it for friends. <laughs> but we do want to make sure that nobody records it. <laughs> it's basically a sell my cake to Universal and eat it too. Yes. Oh, God. Okay, so how are they going to make sure no one records it? Because that would be my first thought. If this is my record, I'm absolutely within my rights to digitise it and do what I like. Well, fascinatingly, prior to the sale, they had some kind of invitation-only listening sessions <laughs> where they played it to a group of journalists and, and various other people and apparently insisted that people left their phones at the desk or whatever, but surely someone must have had a mic stashed or, around them. Know, around even if there isn't, then I, for one, would be extremely tempted to, you know, find an old concert recording of Blowing in the Wind that no one had paid much attention to and just make the claim Oh, yeah, no, this is the, oh, this is the big, exciting new one. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the journalists asked T-Burn Burnett, you know, can't it just be copied? Yeah. And his reply was this. Was it Wu-Tang Clan who sold that record to the guy Martin Shkreli? You know, that thing, that Once Upon a Time of Charlene thing that they sold for, for like two million. Yeah, yeah. He said, that was the beginning of artists taking control of their own work. Oh. But that was just a CD they sold. And CDs are infinitely reproducible. This is actually one of one. An Ionic original is not a copy. It is an original recording. <sighs> We've all been conditioned to accept the terms of and react to things from the frame of mass production. And this is not that. Wait, how do you mean? I call bullshit on that. Because what about the multitracks? Yeah, you know what? That's true. You know, this wasn't a direct-to-stereo recording. It is a copy of the original multitracks, whatever form they're in. If they're on tape, then that's a higher fidelity version than the acetate is. Yeah. And the thing is, I know that it wasn't direct to stereo oh. because of this quote. It went from Los Angeles to Nashville, back to Los Angeles to be mixed. I accompanied Dylan at the time, and then we took it to Nashville and put Dennis Crouch on bass, and Stuart Duncan played his sort of ghostly violin. Right. And then we brought it back, and he played a man who... So it was all overdubbed on some kind of multi-track medium. Yeah. So this isn't one of one. At any point, they could remix that thing and make one of two. <laughs> yeah, to be honest, if I was an engineer at any point in this process, and I may be kind of <laughs> stealing my own lunch by saying, but I would absolutely have just, just made a copy, not to do anything with... Yeah. Yeah. Not for now, anyway, but just, you know. And T-Bone Burnett has the gall to say, 
It is an original recording. We are not contriving scarcity. This is actually scarce. Oh, no. You are contriving scarcity. This is exactly what you're doing. Yeah, there is no other word for what you're doing. It would be so easy to make more. Oh. <laughs> it's just the most barefaced cash grab is what it is. Well, I had no strong feelings about this person before, but I've got several now. <laughs> well, I, I feel we've done our work. Yeah. We can all feel good about Bob Dylan now. Honestly, that's pretty revolting. As practices go. Now, after that, admittedly rather depressing news. It has to be said. I have something to lift your spirits a bit. Oh, yes, please. (laughs) Now, what's the craziest thing you've ever heard on the radio? Wow, that's a big question. But as I think about it, there's not a huge range. I don't think I've heard any particularly crazy stuff on the radio. Mm. Actually, that's not fair. When I was, let's see, it must have been about eight or nine years old, I caught a rerun of the famous War of the Worlds broadcast. Oh, wow. As I was falling asleep. Cool. And I did the thing (laughs) that apparently happened. Because I I don't know, there were these announcements at the beginning of each chunk after the ads that this is a work of unreality or something. But it was done in such a way that very easily went over eight-year-old me's head. So I was just listening with growing panic. Oh, God, that was it. And then they properly had a, a moment where they brought in one of their like regular DJs. To say, you know, sorry, we're interrupting this because all this bad... And then, like, made some explosion sound effects. And I sprinted into my parents' room <laughs> to make it clear just what a terrible thing was happening. And they they fairly shocked, and we listened to the radio together, and it was okay. So that was certainly the wildest reaction I've had to something I heard on the radio. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned this, because this is a, an aside, but... Do you remember Ghostwatch? I have never seen it, but I've heard lots about it and I've seen clips. Because I saw that when it came out. Oh, wow. And I was completely fooled by it. And I completely freaked out about it. I can imagine. It sounds like it was incredibly well done. It was brilliantly done. I mean, you can't recreate that experience of watching something like that, thinking it's a live show, which I did. Uh. And it just got more and more freaky as you were going along. Yeah. And then finally at the end, seeing the credits and going, Mm -hmm. oh, thank God. Oh, oh, oh my God. No, I do. I remember that feeling of just like, oh my word. Okay. I've since become a huge fan of Ghostwatch and kind of, (laughs) I've become a real fanboy of it. Of the cult gloriousness. Yeah, it was just one of those moments. It's a classic. Anyway, Ghostwatch aside, I think probably the craziest thing I've heard on the radio was that time on Radio 3 where they introduced uh, the Firebird and said that it was a story about a prince saving several beautiful princesses from an evil smell (laughs) 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 just followed me up but i mean that's pretty tame it's pretty small fry okay so we can both agree that while we've heard some weird stuff on the radio we've probably seen weirder things read weirder things Mm. the radio doesn't seem to be the prime venue for the truly odd well Mm. on june 29th in vancouver yeah kiss fm played Rage Against the Machines, Killing in the Name. Uh-huh. For 30 hours straight. Okay. <laughs> back to back. <laughs> and brilliantly, with occasional breaks, where the DJs would come on and field calls from people, and everyone who came on would be requesting Killing in the Name. <laughs> oh my God, that's so good. 
<laughs> and each time the DJs would say things like, well, I mean, we'll see if we've got it in the vaults or you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> it was just great. And they just kept playing that song. That's just gorgeous. And it was initially thought that it might be the result of an industrial dispute between the station and the staff. I mean, I could believe that. Because they were restructuring and they'd sacked a bunch of staff. Oh. But since then... There's been some discussion about actually whether it might have been a publicity stunt for the new station that it turned into, Sonic Radio, because it was switching from like a hot adult contemporary area to alternative stylistically. Interesting. So I'm not sure how to feel about it, whether it's a f*** you to the man or whether it was actually just a... An excellent marketing stunt. Yeah. 30 hours as well. I mean, that's a glorious commitment. <laughs> I wonder what they played next. <laughs> Once you've committed to something... Something. To that extent, <laughs> how on earth do you pull up? <laughs> how do you find your way out of that pit? Well, I mean, it's obvious. I mean, after killing in the name, you truly have to have, my name is. Wicker, <laughs> 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 Slim Shady. There's an amazing mashup there for someone with the time. I think you'd appreciate that. And I mean... I'm kind of assuming they must have played a clean radio version because there is a clean radio version, I think. But if not, they had like 16 f***s and a m*** every time. <laughs> Hi, Errol. Um, yeah, which might rack up the most obscene 30 hours on radio I ever heard. <laughs> but while I was just kind of investigating this story, it brought me into contact with the history of this particular song. And it is, oh, it's just golden. Really? All the stuff this song has been involved in, yeah. Mm. I mean, for a start, just the fact that there's so much obscenity in it. <laughs> in various situations, the uncensored version has accidentally been played. <laughs> they, <laughs> they played it on the Radio 1 chart show in 93. <laughs> oh my God, 93? That must have been a, a vibe. <laughs> they played it in store at an Asda supermarket in 2008. <laughs> <laughs> but my very favourite one was where the band Biffy Clyro, the Scottish rock band, yeah. on Joe Wiley's live BBC Radio 1 show at the Reading Festival, they said, oh, they wanted to do an acoustic cover of this thing on stage live in front of the live audience mm -hmm. and so the BBC said yeah fine as long as you don't use the swears yeah and so the band dutifully did a cover without the swears <laughs> but no one had passed the memo on to the audience oh. <laughs> so they all shouted along very audibly in the background <laughs> with the original swears completely failed censorship and it's not in the background either it is totally it's so audible it's this Audible as the band are, pretty much. You're in no doubt. Apparently, Joe Wiley had to kind of apologise afterwards. I would really, really like to see that. I'll send you a video of it, because it's just great. Yes, please. Let me go a minute in. <laughs> <laughs> and the band just pushing on through as if they can't hear these hollered obscenities. It's exceptional. That's amazing. And he, the drummer in particular is just loving it. There's a quiet little grin to the side. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that really is the best of all worlds, isn't it? You've done exactly what you're told, but... But you still managed to smuggle the obscenities under the BBC's nose, despite the BBC's best intentions. There you go! It is so in the spirit of the song, too. I love it. A proper I am Spartacus thing. Oh, okay, good. I needed that to take the taste out of my mouth. But also, of course, it was also in the spirit when it was used as a campaign to keep X Factor off the charts back in 2009. Do you remember that? Oh, yes. Oh, God. Off the Christmas number one spot. I was part of that effort. <laughs> Did it actually become the Christmas number one? 
It did, yeah. It did, oh yay. And in 2021, the UK official charts company announced that it was apparently, according to a poll, the UK's favourite Christmas number one of all time. <laughs> <laughs> and with good reason, to be honest. All right, which means that now it is officially a Christmas song. Oh yeah. And I want to hear it on rotation in co-op. Well, in Asda. Yeah, no, of course. <laughs> and like <laughs> outdoor skating rinks everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Love to see the skating to that. <laughs> Can you mosh and skate at the same time? Oh, I mean, I've seen some... There's always two or three people at any rink I go to where I clutch myself along the wall <laughs> who look like they could do more on skates than I can do on feet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is a charming video. There have also been a few um, political contretemps as well. Apparently, UKIP were playing it at their rallies until the band asked them to stop. <gasps> Wait, really? <laughs> yeah, in 2012. <laughs> do they not know the politics of that band? It's just the Rage Against the Machine have never been like quiet about what they think about nationalism. Yeah. <laughs> Apart from anything else. There was also a 2020 video that was showing Trump supporters dancing to it. <laughs> <laughs> to which the band responded, they just don't get it, do they? <laughs> which I, I very much liked. Slightly less fun, though, was that apparently they uh, played it at painfully high volume for hours on end as a torture method at Guantanamo Bay in the early 2000s. No, really? Yep. Yep. I wonder why that song, rather than just like a signal generator. Tom Morello was, of course, horrified. He said, the fact that music I helped create was used in Crimes Against Humanity sickens me. Which, given the lyrics of Killing in the Main Mom, I think that's remarkably restrained. Yeah, I think that shows some powerful restraint. I can't imagine how upsetting that would be. Yeah. And also, they missed the trick to just use James Blunt. You don't even have to turn that up very high. <laughs> just, <laughs> yeah. just leave it going. I'll talk! I'll talk! <laughs> just the three. Yeah, you go, just leave out a CD jewel case <laughs> of Back to Bedlam. And of course, you can imagine that there have been plenty of covers. But for me, none scale the heights of the one I've just sent you. Uh, one moment, please. <laughs> one by Starbomb, who did a parody cover called Filling in the Name. And it's about the long piece in Tetris, <laughs> bemoaning about just being used <laughs> to fill long spaces. <laughs> okay, here we go. Amazing! That is Lonely <laughs> Island level of magnificence. I just love the <laughs> randomness of it. That's what's so fabulous about it, is that you could have done a parody of Killing in the Name for just about anything. Mm. And to do it on something so minuscule and niche, and actually something that makes you think a bit, like, oh, well, what if the Tetris pieces did feel about being used in certain ways? It's, you know? that, it's that glorious combination of a stupid idea that is fully committed to. You know, that <laughs> <Yes>. is... <laughs> You have you have yes. a dumb Thor out of nowhere, and then you put weeks yeah. into just like crafting the truth of this dumb dumb story. <laughs> it's like the Muppets Hamilton. Yes, same thing. Yes, exactly the same thing. Well, it's just been taken far further than it really should have been taken, but you love it anyway. Way further than it needs to be. <laughs> yeah, it would be a bad joke if it was done lazily. Yes, but somehow by putting that much time, effort, and love into it, it goes all the way around <laughs> back to genius. <sighs> Good stuff. See, I knew I'd be able to lift your spirits. <laughs> you weren't wrong. Trust rage against the machine. <laughs> the ray of sunshine that they are. There you go. It's put a glowing little grin on my face. Which brings us now to facepalm. <laughs> God, this one might be my most 
time-consuming facepalm. Ah, right. The facepalm which I think has eaten the most minutes of my life. (laughs) Okay, wow. So, I was doing some performances in an abandoned monastery that was on the grounds of a stately home, and we were staying in the stately home. As you do. As one does, and got chatting to the owner. Mm. Lovely chap. And he had this small stack of old tape cassettes. I mean, they, they looked like just a normal tape cassette, but they were kind of chunkier. Okay. And he had nothing to play them on. They were from before his time. And he was really curious to know what they were on. Oh, okay, right. And I happened to have, like, my kit with me. Okay. And I went on Google and I found a simple digitizer that I could borrow from um, somewhere a couple of towns over. Yeah. And I said, well, look, I could rent one of these. This is the cost. And we could find out what's on these. Because, you know, I was curious too. Yeah, yeah. These deeply mysterious tapes. And he, he said, absolutely. So we, we, we got this piece of kit in. It was a real-time digitizer. So you just plug everything in and then you play it. And it just plays via USB straight into my computer. Okay, okay, I get it, yeah. And so I set that all up and I left it to run. And, you know, came back at various points when it had finished to turn it over and put new ones in. No, just to hold it right there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hold it right there. <laughs> Did you at any point listen back to any of them? No. No, Mike, there was no need. I saw that it was... No, that would be silly. I did the responsible thing. And My checked. alarms are going off. I checked that there was waveform coming in. Oh, okay. Well, that's okay then. That it wasn't just noise. Yeah, yeah. No, honestly, I, I wanted to... And it was to... actually picking up your laptop microphone or something. <laughs> <laughs> now, you think I'm joking. Those remote choir recordings, the number of times people have connected up their newly bought USB mic to their computer, yeah. thought they were recording it and hadn't selected it in the software and recording the little crappy mic on the laptop oh, wow. from five feet away. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and so you just heard this kind of extremely roomy, oh, no. I'm sure right up against their USB mic, but yeah. irrelevantly so. I'm sure there was some degree of laziness. I also just wanted to like hear it for the first time with the owner yeah. who'd set me up to do this. Yeah. That was all good so then we come to listen and it's a pretty low signal i boost it and it's incredibly dirty oh okay i don't know i've got into audio restoration just the power of the tools that are out there i can't claim any particular expertise but just i'm so impressed with what you can that they could just do what they do yeah that they could do what they do yeah recently i had to do it with a vocal recording i had to have some actor deliver some lines and i needed to use it in a trailer and they just did it on their phone and honestly i think they did it on a phone in between a shower and a busy road it was (laughs) awful while mowing the lawn yes there you go under a helicopter and i wasn't convinced it was going to be used and I just plugged it into one of these things and it came out completely usable. Yeah. You know, not in total isolation. <laughs> I was thinking you were about to say completely flawless without a spot on it and you go completely usable. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastically mediocre. <laughs> and it was. But from where we had started, usable was a remarkable achievement. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, so I get to work on this recording and what I start to unearth it's really strange because it doesn't sound like in the same room as anything happening like there were conversations and stuff but it almost sounded like they were happening in different rooms so I push the clever EQ harder and yeah and all sorts and I start to get to the point where I can kind of not make out words yet but I'm kind of isolating <laughs> this conversation that's happening elsewhere and then yeah in the conversation as I'm listening I see a little peak and peaks are always really exciting for me once it's 
it's being cleaned up because it's like, oh, that's something that it thought was actually interesting. Yeah. That it thought was signal. Let's, so I went straight over to that. Yeah. And it was a WhatsApp notification sound. <laughs> and Mike, as much as I hate you for it, you figured this one out five minutes in. Uh, I hadn't uh, changed my input. Oh, wow. And I had recorded my laptop. I'd set it recording and then I just wandered off. Oh, no. And there had been conversations happening elsewhere in the house. Oh, no. I actually predicted it. You did wow. completely. For two days, though, for two days, I oh, slaved no. over these recordings of a laptop in an empty room. Room, oh wow trying to scrape together and i mean it shows that i couldn't tell the difference i thought it was just tape noise but it wasn't it was just like the digital floor ambient noise of of this microphone like i was just amplifying noise most of the time were you then able to digitize them kind of re-digitize them oh so easily yeah no i went on to reaper preferences input <laughs> this usb thing um and then i recorded them and, and they, they were and then it was like oh that's a clean signal yeah you thought, oh, that sounds good. And it was perfectly <laughs> pleasant, like, piano and violin recordings oh. done in a drawing room somewhere. And I was able to chop them up and hand them over with a tiny bit of tidying. <laughs> so that bit took a day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fabulous. It feels like being an archaeologist just gently brushing the dirt away for weeks of something which turns out to be your own car keys that you dropped in the mud a week earlier. It is, yeah. <laughs> I was so excited as well, Mike, because, like, we didn't know when these were from and there were all these conversations and i was like oh, i wonder what we're gonna unearth yeah i wonder what we're gonna dig our way down to i mean the thing is you were probably sitting at your laptop mm. and what i wouldn't give for that video feed from your laptop webcam <laughs> at that moment where you heard the notification sound and that complex web of emotions crossed your face oh my god <laughs> it's like what's that no it can't be oh i would love to say that it was immediate realization but that would be giving myself too much credit there was a genuine <laughs> moment of wait that sounds exactly like how did they have a whatsapp <laughs> like i think i went as far as so wait what did the whatsapp notification sound used to be such that it was a common sound and, and then i was like no no you know what's more likely it's like the slowest mo penny drop ever yes exactly this kind of gradual clattering to the ground i wasn't fully convinced until i went on reaper and i went on preferences and i looked and i saw the built-in microphone oh, selected wow. and that was when i buried my head in my One of those lazy summer evenings, the fireflies are out, the log fire is burning lazily. Okay, I'm there. And you reach for your toasting fork. Mm. <laughs> mm. Spear your piece of bread on the end of it. Spear it right through. To give it a, a late evening toasting. Ah, I'm really hoping the toast foley has crickets in the background now. <laughs> and maybe some, a, a light creak in the distance. And this is what you hear when you attempt to spread that toast. My first thought is a wild boar snuffling through the undergrowth nearby. <laughs> um, it's time to panic. <laughs> you know what? There is a timidity to this spread. Okay. Which puts me in a totally different place from your pastoral idyll. Oh, oh okay, right. To me, this is the sound of you've just spent the night with someone you really like for the first time ever and you're desperate to make them breakfast nicely. Without waking them up. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that, that you're in a very small studio apartment and you're really worried that the cold butter is going to tear the bread. And so you're just sort of... You're 
cutting at the bread very, very lightly with the knife. Mm. I'm very curious as to what sets it in the Black Forest for you. Have we ever had a guest toast foley? We haven't. Oh, my God. And this is our first, I think, genuine guest toast foley. I mean, we had the crocodile toast foley that was kind of a guest <laughs> toast foley. Yes. But uh, no, this is our first human guest toast foley. This is my daughter. Oh, wow. Well, that, thank you so very, very much. And the reason I brought up this scene mm. was because on her toasting fork was not a piece of toast, but a marshmallow. <gasps> it is a toasted marshmallow. Wait, you didn't butter a marshmallow, did you? <laughs> Tell me you didn't butter a marshmallow. I will hang up this call <laughs> no, right now. No, we just kind of scraped it gently. Wow, okay. But that was a proper, iconic marshmallow crust, that was. Carefully toasted for maximum crustiness. It sounds like a creme brulee level of just like perfect crisp caramelised sugar. It was. And can I just say, you have not only redeemed yourself from the horror of buttering a marshmallow, <laughs> but also from some silent judgement I subjected you to a little earlier when you talked about <laughs> sitting around a campfire, putting a slice of bread on a toasting fork. <laughs> this is not done. How do you even do that? Do you sort of accordion it on? Do you just put a bit of it on and let it flop around? I mean, a toasting fork used to be about toasting bits of bread and things. Right, but, you know, we used to go to the toilet and holes in the ground. Like, things have improved <laughs> since then. We've developed as a species. And <laughs> continuing to live as if we were in the Dark Ages is nothing to be proud of. But no, thank God, a marshmallow. Well, I would say that it's one of the more narratively rich Toast Foley's we've had in a while, mm. you know, it, it giving us both these vivid fantasies of possible situations where it could be used. And arguably even tastier than buttered toast. <laughs> or, I, ooh, it's been a long time since I've had a toasted marshmallow, so I'm going to have to recuse myself from the vote. Okay, right. But I'd say at least it's got to be a close run thing. <laughs> now, to go with such epic Toast Foley, I feel we do need to have widescreen jam. Yeah. If you can have widescreen jam, I mean, <laughs> I don't know quite how that works. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 we're, we're going to push forward with that. I think you had it on the first go. Now, uh, John, you and the listeners, I'm sure, are well aware that most film and television dialogue isn't actually recorded on set. Mm. Or if it is, because of the mechanics of the shooting process, you know, wind machines and cameras and staff moving around with stuff, mm. it's just too noisy to be used, really. And it, it often just ends up being a guide then for the dialogue to then be replaced afterwards in the studio and then synced up to the live recordings. Which is still remarkable to me. Yeah. And, you know, the, the actors routinely re-perform their lines then in, a, in an audio studio and then they use things like revoice yeah. to sync it up with the original film. I would love to play with some of that software. For all that it's good at doing it well, I want to see it do it badly. You know, I want to give it an undoable job. <laughs> well, I can give you a demo of it doing it badly. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes, <me>. please. <laughs> okay, that's that's going to be a bonus somewhere, maybe next month. That's my normal modus operandi. <laughs> <laughs> But what is perhaps less well appreciated amongst the general public mm. is that there are also times when an actor isn't dubbed by themselves. They're dubbed by someone else. And there are actually plenty of reasons why this might be the case. Mm. Um, for example, they might actually want a different voice than was the original. They might 
you know, be replacing swears and things like that. Or, of course, famously, like replacing bad singing. Get an actual singer. Of course, um, Darth Vader was the case of one of these. Oh, of course. Yeah. A really easy sync there. I think they made their lives very straightforward. They didn't have to lip sync much. No. <laughs> but I mean, it's great because David Prowse, the guy who played it, is a country lad. So it would have been, well, uh, Luke, I am your father. That's amazing. It would have sounded like an episode of The Archers. I'm your father. <laughs> well, I think they missed a trick then. That sounds just perfect. But this all relates to my jam, you see, because there are all these reasons why you might dub someone with someone else when making a film. But my jam this month is that I've just recently discovered a new reason and a whole sub-genre of voiceover artists who dedicate themselves to overdubbing screams. <laughs> they are professional <laughs> scream actors. And I was just clued up to this by another podcast I listened to and I found a great video interview with a couple of these professional scream actors that I sent to you. A lady called Ashley Peldon and a guy called Scott White who do this stuff professionally. And, I mean, what were your impressions of seeing this video? I enjoyed it hugely. I mean, it just amazes me. It really does come under that category for me of, once you know it exists, of course it exists. Yes. How could it not? Yeah. But, you know, for any length of time before that, <laughs> why would it exist? You know, yeah. and, and hearing them do it, it's hearing screams that you then realise you've been hearing your entire life. Like, really specific, <laughs> excellent screams. It's like when someone first tells you the Wilhelm scream exists. Yes. You go, oh. <laughs> yeah, or, or the amen break. Yes. This... <laughs> sound yeah which has been part of your life they're having all this discussion about all these different kinds of scream mm. and you go well yeah i hadn't thought about it i just thought a scream to scream to scream <laughs> it's this weird construct watching these people do this interview because they're talking about something and then suddenly they'll release this like blood-curdling scream and then go on talking normally about their the motivations <laughs> and stuff yes yeah well i mean obviously <laughs> the grief scream is like and then she goes ah, no kind of thing and you go oh my god you feel really sorry for her and then she snaps out of it back <laughs> yeah. into just talking about it back into chatting. And you're right, it's pulled back the curtain, hasn't it? You wonder whether you'll ever be able to watch a film quite the same again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's like when you first, someone first tells you, oh, you know when they do video interviews and they're forever cutting between different camera angles? Mm. The reason they do that is because they want to edit the audio. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the first time someone tells you that, you go, oh, yeah, of course they do that. <laughs> <laughs> and now, I can't watch anything which is a video interview without when it switches camera angles going, oh, they did a cut there. Yeah. Yes, me too. You know, I just can't stop doing it now. No, one of those ones for me is the fact that nature documentaries are a hundred percent silent footage before they reach post production. <laughs> yeah. You know, once you think about it, it's like, well, yeah, everything's shot through a telephoto lens from miles away. Yeah. yeah. How, how how do I expect that we're going to get little cheetah purrs? <laughs> there is the man who does the little gerbil rustles underground. Yeah, I, I watched a video once on how they get good noises for um like beehives and stuff. <laughs> and what you do is you just go to a farm <laughs> and you use a little Tupperware tub. Yeah. And you trap a bee and you slide your Zoom recorder under there as well. B goes crazy, buzzing about. <laughs> and then you just sort of offset like seven or eight layers of that and all of a sudden you've got a busy beehive. Poor old B. Poor old B. I wonder whether it got a higher rate, a kind of extra union rate for having to do multiple takes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for being copied and pasted on screen so very many times. Yeah, time and a half. <laughs> I, re I reckon that would be fair. Also, isn't it 
just so incredibly physical. The the screaming. Oh, God, yeah. The guy was breaking a sweat after just a couple of minutes of screaming. You think, blimey, they don't half earn their session fees. And one of the reasons that they talked about being employed, which I guess makes sense, obviously they're, you know, vocal professionals and they know how to do things without getting hurt. Yeah. Talking about how sometimes screaming is just going to burn your voice out. Yeah. And how it's a lot more practical to pay one of these artists to take a week off to recover than their lead actor. Yeah. So sometimes they're literally being employed to blow their voices out. I think one of the reasons it's so physical as well is because, again, this is something that I cannot not notice now. It's like whenever you have one of those action movies where they have some big explosion or some big stunt that goes on and people are screaming in it, they have to sustain the scream. Oh, wow. Through the whole of the slow-mo. I hadn't thought about that. I mean, the demonstration they have was some scene from Venom where the guy is kind of lifted off his motorcycle and then flies through the air and there's an explosion. It's all in slow-mo and the guy's screaming for like about 10 seconds straight. <laughs> going, oh! <laughs> the whole way through it. And you go, oh my God, where does he get the breath to do it? It's a kind of athleticism, you know? Proper physical training is required. And seeing the footage of Hugh Jackman doing some of his own screams and grunts. And clearly, like, part of that for him is 500 star jumps first, getting properly physically exhausted. Yeah. Wouldn't you like it if actors kind of wore it as a mark of respect that, oh, no, I don't just do my own stunts, I do my own grunts too. Yes! (laughs) I would, honestly, I would rather see a film where an actor does their own grunts than their own stunts. Yeah. I think actors doing their own stunts leads to, you know, high insurance and you're endangering other people's livelihoods to... But doing your own grunts it's just uh, <laughs> takes just as much effort doesn't put you or other people in danger the other thing that gets me about it, and, and that i find really really impressive mm. is how there's clearly so much technical skill involved and also that they really are putting themselves into it oh yeah ashley Peldon, one of the things she said was my scream isn't just noise it's an acting burst. And you think, oh, she's being pretentious. Until you watch her doing it. <laughs> and you go, yes. My God, the way yes. she does that kind of grief, kind of no kind of thing. It's really impressive. Or that the the guy, um, Scott White, the way he's like copying Tom Hardy's mouth shapes during the footage to make sure that the screen matches the mouth shapes. It's it's a proper skill. The other great example was he was talking about a scene from The Incredibles, the second Incredibles film, where the Incredibles throw a pilot out of a plane into a river. And he said, yeah, and this was a difficult one because I had to have fear turning into annoyance because, oh, no, they've stolen my plane. And then they've got to hit the water, so the scream has got to stop abruptly. Yes. And then he does it. And you go, <laughs> bloody hell, he, he did actually do that. It would be easy to think, oh, this is just a joke job. But that is proper professionalism and, and expertise. It you is. You go, actually, yeah, that deserves to be a job. Now, I wonder, though, how many expert screamers can the industry support? Do we now know the two screamers? Are there 10? Are there 30? Are there 100? I mean, there's a limit to how much they could could do without wrecking their voices, but I don't know. (laughs) I don't know how many sessions they do. But you think how many horror films there are. You think how many action films. That's true. How much of that may be overdubbed or may not be overdubbed. I mean, how many actors do their own screams, (laughs) do their own grunts? But it's also (laughs) that episode of Neighbours. Yeah. It's in regular dramas and procedurals and... I was left with one question, though. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know how seriously I take take investigating this podcast. Oh, yes, I do. And so the question that bugs me was, why was it? that Ashley Sheldon's microphone was set to figure eight. Oh. (laughs) 
Oh, was it really? It was. Oh, no. It's going to bug me. There's got to be some reason, surely. Oh. Okay. What's your best guess? The reason to use it, I would have thought, would have been to try and reject something off axis. Maybe there was a camera with a fan in it or something. Okay. Or an air conditioner or something. She was trying to reject that noise. Maybe. Just trying to push it out. Or maybe so she could be a bit further away from the mic and feel a bit closer. Don't know. I mean, it's not like she's making quiet noises. I mean, no. You can't scream quietly. I could believe that that's just not the microphone that she uses for screaming. Yeah, I mean... It's, it's, it's in her collection, but she never gets it out, so she doesn't really think about things. But they saw it and they said, oh, can we please use that one? Because that's a really good-looking microphone. Maybe that's why she was screaming. She was horrified at their polar pattern choice. <laughs> <laughs> Right, no, 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 no more investigation. That's what happened. That is the truth. Which means, sad as it seems, that it is time for us to say farewell. Indeed. Goodbye, Afida Zayn and the other one. Um, Mike, do you have anything to plug this month? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, there was just a kind of fun episode of the uh, Cambridge MT Patrons podcast. Uh, you know I do the Mixed Rescue stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, I feature a multitrack on that podcast every month. Mm -hmm. And I came back to one of the multitracks that I mixed 13 years ago for Mixed Rescue and remixed it. Whoa! And compared what I did 13 years ago. Your taste back then and your taste now. Oh, that's really fun. And because it was so fun, I decided to make it free to listen. So you can can listen to that for free at cambridgefmt.com slash Alaska. The band's name is North to Alaska, so it's Alaska. That sounds amazing. Um, on my end, the Gilgamesh that I've been talking about for years, we finally got a video trailer, which should be up by the time this releases. Fabulous. So if you jump on Instagram, either the project's Instagram, which is Gilgamesh underscore theatre underscore, or just my personal Witten and underscore, it'll be on both of those. And I can put a link in the show notes. That's a great idea. I have never written down an Instagram handle from a podcast, especially <laughs> if it has bloody unders scores in it. And if you would like some more of our trademark nonsense then do head over to our PSTB Patreon account. That's patreon.com slash projectstudiotbreak where we have smack plates low boys, mm -hmm. the de facto lingua franca and an inflatable sea lion <laughs> amongst other <laughs> immersive sensory modalities. So we do and you can tweet us at twitter.com forward slash PSTB tweets. You can Facebook us at facebook.com forward slash PSTB books. Can they email us Mike? They certainly can at teabreak at projectstudiotbreak.com. Wow, what a lot of high energy momentum we've got. I'm loving this. <laughs> no one's going to need to overdub us. No one. They couldn't keep up. No way on earth. Ta-ra! <laughs> Ta-ra! Ta-ra!